Papa Was a Preacher by Eileen Porter, read by Amy Zook on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. The People Had a Mind to Work The Chinese philosopher Lin Yatang has said, One of the most important consequences of our being animals is that we have got this bottomless pit called the stomach. The morning after Candler's arrival into our family, there were seven other bottomless pits clamoring, as usual, to be filled. An angel of mercy in the garments of a church member came to the parsonage to mix the mountain of dough for our morning breakfast. I use a quart of milk, Mother began, twelve cups of flour. But Sister Porter, Mrs. Blewett said in amazement, I've never made that many biscuits in all my life. You needn't worry, Mother said. They'll all be eaten. And they were. Mrs. Blewett came to our rescue for five mornings, and she was forced to admit that for the satisfaction of seven zestful appetites, one pan of biscuits was a mere preamble. The other six pits, however, bowed in deference to Cecil's, which had snatched the blue ribbon for itself at the tender age of 18 months. That was also during a time when Mother was ill. Papa had gone to the country and brought back in tow a 16-year-old girl, blessed with more brawn than brain, to do the housework and to care for Cecil and Hugh. One morning, she ambled to Mother's bedside. "'Miss Porter,' she drawled, "'Cecil's done at seven eggs, and he's a pestering me for another one. Must I give it to him?' Feeding her children three times a day was only a minor step in Mother's towing the mark of the age women's work is never done. She once said to a neighbor, I never feel as if I should go to bed at night unless I have made at least one new garment during the day. Cooking meals, making clothes for eight, directing church plays, teaching mission study courses. Still at any hour, she found the time and energy for feeding the hunger of a childish soul. Her voice with the low, sweet ring of a bell intoning words from the Bible are from our favorite storybooks, created in an aurora of security which no force from the outer world could penetrate. Papa was necessarily less tangible for reading purposes. Aside from being a shepherd of his flock, there was countless demands on his time in the herding of his own lambs. The alliance between cleanliness and godliness pushed one day out of the week right off his pastoral calendar. On Tuesday, Papa the preacher became Papa the laundryman. The mold of tradition which holds Monday as wash day was broken, for on Monday morning, Papa had to rest from Sunday and the afternoon attend the Women's Missionary Society. But come Tuesday each week, the network of clothesline back at the parsonage sagged with the weight of wet garments, numerous enough to clothe the regiment, all done by Papa. For Mother to have the responsibility of washing, in addition to her other duties, was to his mind unthinkable, and to pay a washerwoman for such a task would have been robbing Peter to pay Paul. So by his own efforts, Papa weakly brought the family's cleanliness in step with his own godliness. Flying balloon-like in the wind were ten pairs of long-handled underwear, thirty shirts, ten dresses, fifteen sheets, twenty-five towels, and as many cup towels, fourteen pillowcases, and an unlistable odd and ends which complete a family washing. When that boon to womankind, the washing machine, made its debut, it found joyous welcome in the heart of Papa. He wore out three generations of such machines in one generation of children. Papa's homework also included the dressing of his prodigy each morning for school while Mother prepared breakfast. His scientific mind readily evolved a mass production for the dressing process. We would clothe ourselves according to our talents and then approach Papa at the time he was in motion to fill our particular need. If he was brandishing the hairbrush and our locks were tangled, that was the time to step up. If our shoe buttoner was functioning, it was up to us to place our shoes under it at a timely moment. For one detail of dressing, we are all dependent upon Papa, the anchoring of long underwear under our stockings. The trick was to wrap the underwear tightly around the ankle, 
then sneak up on it with the stocking before it could slip. Papa was a wizard at doing it, though his method was open to objection. He would take us one at a time upon his lap and seemed to lose all consciousness that an anatomy boasted anything beside the leg. The forgotten trunk of the body would be hauled over sideways, tucked under his arm, and pinned down firmly at a 45-degree angle. The arms waved frantically in search of a straw to grasp, while the upside-down head dangled helplessly near the floor. But Papa would achieve his purpose, and the torso would then be shifted to the other side while the second stocking was pulled into place. When someone else was the victim, the expedition was fascinating to watch, especially with the added attractions of Papa's facial contortions and the working of his tongue as he performed the feat. Papa, you're going to have to stop preaching before long, Ed warned him one day. You're wearing your tongue out dressing your children. But not all work of the household was dispelled by the magical wand of parental hands. An idle brain is the devil's workshop. Papa literally believed this, and he attempted to outwit the devil by keeping our hearts and our brains and our hands busy. Busy with work, never too hard, but always hard enough. There were assigned duties in the home for each one of us, and for the boys' jobs outside. The four older boys first braved the financial world as tillers of the soil. When they were very young, Papa would rent a piece of land for them to farm. It was usually a cotton patch, which he would plow and plant and leave them to finish. The money earned when the cotton was sold belonged wholly to them, to be spent as fancy dictated. When out of the corner of his weathered eye, Papa could see the money rolling towards a hole, he would rescue it by borrowing the sum and would pay it back with interest when the temptation had passed. Once when the boys were well launched as cotton farmers, the town toughies became bent on destroying their project. Each afternoon, nine dirty-faced, sneering boys would swoop down upon the field to stamp the cotton stalks to earth, scatter and throw dirt on the picked cotton, and commit any other deprecation their fertile minds could invent. Papa had always preached the gospel of turning the other cheek and rigidly held the boys to it. One afternoon, however, he happened to see the injustices of the gang. That night at supper, he said, Boys, the next time that gang bothers you on your own property, and his eyes twinkled, if you don't clean up on them, I'll clean up on every last one of you. The next afternoon, the bars of restriction down, Hugh, Cecil, Rayvon, and Ed were hopefully on guard near a pile of rocks. At least three of them were hopeful. It would be just our luck if they didn't show up today, said Cecil. Let's hope they don't, Hugh said, for he was a pacifist at heart and had no desire to fight anybody, with Papa's permission or without, but he hoped in vain. On schedule, little Napoleon, followed by eight warriors, swaggered into view. Come on, fellows, he commanded. Let's have some fun out of the sissies. They won't fight. And they jumped into the cotton patch like grasshoppers into a wheat field. Who won't fight? yelled Cecil, his face flaming with antagonism. Yeah, who won't fight? chimed in Ed as he stepped up in the front line beside Cecil, making the most of the chance that comes once in a lifetime. Get out of this field and stay away, warned Cecil. And with that, he hurled a welter of rocks against the offenders. Look at the preacher's kids, gasped the leaders. Come on, guys, give it to them. A heated battle ensued with Brox's weapons, and although little Napoleon's forces outnumbered the enemy two to one, he met his Waterloo. Papa had heard of the fight before supper time that night, as had the whole town, but he made no comment. At the table during the pause, just before the blessing, Cecil said, Well, we whipped that gang today. We looked anxiously at Papa to see if he was really glad of it now that the deed was done. He picked up the platter of bread. Mother, he said, and we waited for, with bated breath for his next words. Won't you have some cornbread? And a contented smile settled over his face. Cotton, in its diverse stages of growth, provided many an odd job for the boys. 
As they grew older and could assume more responsibility, Papa discontinued the renting of land and secured places for them in broader fields of labor. During summer vacation, there was always cotton chopping, hoeing, or picking to be done. Of these, chopping was the fastest and most pleasant. Two or three weeks after the cotton begins to grow, there comes a necessity for thinning it to a stand. Six or eight stalks are chopped away to every one that is left. Chopping came during the early summer, hoeing after that and picking in the late summer and fall. Often Papa would contract for a particular field, and the boys worked by the job instead of the day. Hence, the faster they worked, the better the pay. When they worked in such manner, if the landscape lacked an adult overseer, Hugh wrapped the mantle of authority about his shoulders and kept the others in line. This he did by virtue of being the oldest and by having formed the habit of taking Papa's place at home when Papa was away. Life to a little boy is good, even in the cotton patch. Nearly always within sneaking distance was a swimming hole, but had to vanish from the sight for a splash in the pond while Hugh's eyes covered the field became an exercise of wit for the other three boys. Chopping in a patch one first day, a sweltering day, they were working near the end of the rows when before their eyes appeared a mirage. But as they grew near, unlike other mirages, it did not vanish. With every step it cleared. The joy of joys and the thrill of thrills, the cotton row ran right to the edge of a cool, shady creek. The three youngster choppeteers exchanged the hopeful glances of the doomed. To pivot at the water's edge and start on another long row was as hard as for the young lover to tear himself from the side of his beloved. At the end of every row, the swimming hole seemed to rise and crook a beckoning finger. Hugh was the only one who failed to see it. But the god of little boys looked down and placed a parching sensation in Hugh's throat. He also caused the water buckets to be empty, and Hugh had to go to the farmhouse for a drink. As he trudged out of sight, three hoe handles dropped as if by command, and three boys went into a huddle. There was not time for a hasty dip, but there was enough minutes to scheme. How can we keep Hugh out of circulation for an hour? Raybon asked Cecil, for Cecil could usually figure out a way to accomplish things, especially a swim. Nothing would stop him, said Ed, but breaking his hoe. If we can't do that... We oughtn't to break it, Cecil said, because he'd, he'd sure know something was up. But, oh boy, we could sure make him break it. And so the plot was laid. A large rock was carried to Hugh's cotton row and carefully concealed under a clump of Johnson grass. When Hugh's whistle and refreshed tones floated through the air, the other workers were too engrossed in their chopping to notice that he was back. After a brief respite, Hugh lifted his hoe with more than usual vigor and set to work. There was for a time only the muted rhythm of four hoes hitting the soft earth. Then came the plotted moment. The stillness was broken by a sharp crash and the splitting of wood. Of all the rotten luck, Hugh called out, I've broken my hoe handle. Three pairs of eyes met in gleeful anticipation. I'll have to go to the house and fix it. And once more, as Hugh faded from sight, three hoe handles dropped to the ground. On the bonny banks of the creek, clothes were stripped with lightning speed. But the swimming feat was not to be gulped. First must come the teaser, a little by-play with wasps. Each boy found a long stick, and according to the customary procedure, used it to prod wasps from their nests in the trees. As the infuriated insects began to dart here and there, the boys dodged in and among the trees and stood at last defiant on the edge of the creek, until they could escape no longer the frenzied attack. Then with a yippee, as the wasp dived at them, they dived into the creek and lay floating in a liquid elysium. For the life of him, Papa could not understand why it was taking the boys so long to chop that particular patch. I'll go with them, he told Mother one morning, and see what the difficulty is. He chopped one row. When he came to the end of it, he paused at the edge of the creek. 
He looked at its cool, enticing depths. Came the dawn of understanding. He took his hoe and went home. During the school term, there were afternoon hours and Saturdays when the devil might establish a workshop. But counteracting jobs were plentiful. It was never difficult for a preacher's son to find work among the businessmen of the church. There was always groceries to be delivered, suits to be cleaned, lawns to be mowed, ice cream freezers to be turned at the drugstore, with a salary of three dishes of cream, and a chance to lick the dasher, cotton seed to be loaded on boxcars, and other occupations calculated to develop the sterner stuff of manhood. And there was ever the church janitorship. If the appointed janitors from the family were pressed for time, some other member would be drafted for dusting the pews. And when rain seeped into the basement, as it did on several occasions, it required the combined labor of the entire family, with buckets and wash tub to bail it out. Whenever Papa secured a job of delivering groceries for one of the boy, Ed begged for the privilege of filling it. One such job, however, was short-lived. For distributing sugar and flour, Ed was provided a little wagon drawn by two hard-tailed mules called Pat and Mike. They were young, wild, and determined not to be controlled by a mere scrap of leather. Like all young creatures, animal or human, they strained and pulled towards the outside as hard as the harnesses would allow. Ed got tired of it. I'll teach you a few things, he bawled at them one day as he pulled them to the stop near our house. Although he was late with deliveries, he unhitched both mules and with coaxing and pulling succeeded in hitching Pat in Mike's place. Now, just pull all you want, he said as he climbed back into the wagon, and they did. The habit of pulling in a certain direction, combined with the stubbornness of the two mules, resulted in a grand catastrophe to harness and wagon. As Ed said giddy-up and slapped them with the reins, they started pulling, each in his direction, which is now towards the other. They stumbled one over another, broke the wagon tongue, and made a web of the harness, kicking and stamping all the while. Ed hopped from the wagon and started towards the house. Papa! Papa! He yelled. Help me, Papa! Papa helped untangle the mass. But facing his employer was Ed's own responsibility. He lost the job. As the boys grew older, they left the outgrown shells of such occupation for domes more vast. It was while he was chopping cotton that Rabon was informed of a long-distance call from an evangelist who had heard of him sing and wanted him for a gospel singer. He dropped his hoe and for all he knows, it's lying there yet. After that, his voice was a greater asset than his hands. Hugh, like Papa, enjoyed a walk down the road of teaching. He inspired his college years with terms of teaching. After he and Cecil had attended teacher's college for one year in order to make expenses for going through the university, they secured a contract for conducting a two-horse rural school in the Blacklands of Texas. Hugh, 19 years old, was superintendent teaching the four upper grades. Cecil, 17, taught the four lower grades. Two of Cecil's girl pupils in third grade were older than he, and all of Hugh's boy students were larger than he, since he was short for his age. It was a tough community, and the pupils had a quaint custom of bidding the teachers farewell with brickbats each year before the term was over. Hugh and Cecil taught their terms out, but not without treading the familiar stony path. One day, Hugh discovered his older boys, a rowdy dozen, chewing tobacco. I want to see all twelve of you after school, he told them. An ominous silence fell over the group, more ominous for him than for the pupils. They looked at each other with smirks and winks, reminiscent of what they had done to other teachers who got out of hand. After school, punishment was metered out in mass strapping. Cecil came in to lend moral support. He seated himself on the woodpile near the stove, with each hand conveniently on a stick of wood. Two braggarts, who had boasted what they intended to do to these slickers, stood nonchalantly cleaning their fingernails with knives. As their time came for passing under the rod, however, they saw Cecil's hand clenched around the threatening sticks of stovewood. Their knives were folded and put away. 
Hugh presented a comical picture, his height placing him in the perfect position to hit the proper spot, but his energy ran down like sand from a glass as he tried to make an impression on the strong frames of the culprits. When the hour was over, the punished boys left in a manner that was almost too docile to forebode any good. Nothing happened for the rest of that day, but Hugh and Cecil had the sensation of standing on top of a volcano. They could feel a boiling and seething underneath the surface. Next morning came the eruption. As they neared their two-room schoolhouse, twelve disgruntled boys and their three irate fathers stood waiting in front of the building. A heavy-set, black-bearded mountain of a man, looking like the giant Goliath, stepped from the group. It was Odo Cecil, the father of Leo Cecil. "'Which one of you is Hugh?' he thundered, as he poised a club in air for accurate aim. Hugh turned white around the gills, but he stepped out fearlessly. "'That's my name,' he said in a falsetto voice, five keys higher than his usual one. "'But don't you dare hit me!' His unexpected resistance was an evident shock to the giant. He began to back away, but cursed Hugh with every step. Slapping his pocket as if he held a gun, he muttered, "'I'd kill you both!' The other students had crowded around, and it was past time for school to begin. With fluttering heart, Hugh called books, while Cecil climbed back into the buggy and drove to the home of a trustee. The other two fathers evidently lost interest, for they went home, but not Odo. He followed Cecil, wheel on wheel. Cecil found the trustee, stated his case, and left Odo in his care. Then he went back to the school building. Fifteen minutes later, the trustee and the father drove into the schoolyard. They summoned Leo from the class and took him around to the end of the building so that the trustee might look upon the welt which the whipping had left on his delicate anatomy. The building was L-shaped, and from the window of his room, Cecil could see the whole proceedings. The father pulled the boy's pants down to show the marks, but just then Leo saw a girl who was tardy coming up the path. He yanked his trousers back up. Intent on what he was doing, the father did not see the girl. He yanked the trousers back down again. Quit, pa! Leo stormed in indignation, as again he covered himself and held the trousers tightly in place. "'Don't you tell me to quit, you young whippersnapper!' his father commanded fiercely. "'I'll teach you to mind me!' And with that, a struggle began between father and son, which ended with the father taking his buggy strap and giving the son a wailing, the like of which Hugh could not have accomplished in a lifetime. They drove away, scuffling and cursing at each other. The trustee, in great relief, called Hugh and Cecil outside. If he ever sets foot on the schoolyard again, he told them, hit them with anything you can get your hands on. When school was out that year, the two boys were faced with an empty summer. They filled it by selling Bibles in rural Texas. Having learned a beautiful canned speech, embroidered with tear-jerking phrases and illustrated with Wheel of Life, they set out on foot to scatter truth in the highways and byways. Cecil's honeyed tones were especially effective with backwoods people. As he slowly turned the wheel of life and delivered his speech, they would be carried away on the wings of emotion, and before descending to the earth they would sign a contract. But when delivering and collecting time came, the last of the summer, emotion was spent and no rural customer was to be found anywhere. The Bible salesmen lodged where they could, in homes and rural communities or in a small-town hotel, and they called for their mail once a week at a central post office. Hugh entered the office one day. "'Any mail for me today?' he asked. "'Yep, son, here it is.' The post offer reported gladly. "'You got a card from your pa. He wants you to come home this Saturday. They're all getting along fine at home.' With earnings from the sale of Bibles, the boys bought bicycles, and the following summer they rode in style through the same territory selling United States maps. Simultaneously, with such occupations of older members of the family, Gill and Candler were in business for themselves in a lemonade soda pop stand on the vacant lot next to Papa's City Church. 
They had a thriving trade, though not too much profit, as it was my habit every day to treat my friends. We would be playing lady. Suppose we drop around to my brother's drugstore, I would suggest in a grown-up manner, and have a dish of ice cream. Naturally, the suggestion would fall on receptive ears, and within the next few minutes, Gil, the proprietor, would look up to see a doll caravan, half a dozen little girls wearing wide-brimmed, beplumed hats, trailing skirts, and high-heeled shoes, pushing doll buggies down the street towards the drugstore. With a sigh, he would call into action his chief soda jerker, Candler, and they would serve the party between looks at me which said, Wait till you get home. The penalty was somehow never heavy enough to discourage more than momentarily my hospitable impulses. The business eventually went into bankruptcy. From the time he was 12 years old, each of the six boys from his own earnings clothed himself, provided his spending money, and later helped to pay his college expenses. In addition, they pulled a sum which formed an allowance for sister and me. Recently, I asked Cecil to tell me of the various jobs at which he worked while going through college. I was not prepared for the avalanche. Well, he said, besides the ones you know of, these are the ones I remember. Clerking in a dry goods store, washing dishes in a restaurant, loading cotton seed on a boxcar, selling fruit at a Greek stand, milking a cow and taking ch care of children for a college professor, selling coal on commission in the middle of summer, substituting for a mail carrier, bell hopping at a hotel, working on a pipeline in the oil fields, herding cattle on a ranch. There I begged for a breathing spell. His job might be varied in kind, but they were slight in number in comparison with those of the other five boys. There is only one good, that is knowledge, said Socrates. Papa and Mama heartily agreed, and they determined that each of their eight lambs should eventually have a sheepskin. To that end, thirty years in all were spent by the family in college. Unable to sustain several in school away from home, on three occasions Papa denied himself promotions to larger churches that he might stay near enough to the university for the children to live at home and commute and Conference smiled helpfully at his ambition by stationing him at nearby churches. Somebody was always graduating from something. I recall one particular June when Candler was graduating from grammar school. I was receiving my diploma from high school. Jeanette and Ed were getting BA degrees from college, and Hugh was taking his Bachelor of Divinity degree. We were all still at home, all helping Papa carry on the program of his church next door, and all engaged in some outside work, even Sister and I. She is a professional church visitor, and I as a teacher of the children's class in expression. It was that year in June that Uncle Tom came from Mississippi to visit us. He was a cotton buyer and had to work only three months of the year. The rest of the time, Uncle Tom took his leisure. He had no particular creed, but like the Hindus, he spent much of his time in contemplation. During his visit to us, he sat most of the time on the front porch, his feet propped up on the railing, chewing gum and thinking. Thinking. And watching the endless procession made by a family of ten about their daily activities. Going out to school or to work, rushing in to meals or to redress and rushing out again to work, or to play, or to church. One afternoon, when the stream of traffic across the porch had been unbroken, he heard the screen door slam one more unbearable time. This time it was Papa, his Bible under his arm, quickly shoving his watch back into his pocket and adjusting his hat as he hastened across the porch. Uncle Tom could stand it no more. He banged his feet on the floor from the railing and stood up in exasperation. "'Great Scott, Edwin!' he shouted to Papa, who by this time was crossing the yard. "'When do you people meditate?'